to look at Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, and we'll read through chapter 5, verse 11. You're turning there. You'll recall that the apostles, uh, James and John, or Peter and John, were put in prison for healing and preaching in the name of Jesus. They were told to be silent. They said, we cannot be silent. We cannot but help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They went back to the church and they said, we need to pray for God to intervene on our behalf so that we can continue to be bold. And God shook the place with His presence, filled them with the Spirit so that they could continue on with boldness. And following that, we read in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed, or excuse me, that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we read this passage of Scripture this morning and we tremble because the truth is we are all to greater or lesser degrees hypocrites just like Ananias and Sapphira. Father, I want to ask that this passage will provoke fear within each one of us. Father, You are not playing games. You are serious about the purity of Your church. 
you are serious about the sincerity of your people. So, Father, will you teach us the lessons that you have for us this morning and help us by your grace to apply them to our lives and our church. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our Lord Jesus Christ is intent on building His church. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that Satan's top priority is destruction of the church. Of course, he will not succeed because Jesus told Peter very clearly in Matthew 16:18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Nevertheless, our adversary is tenacious and he will ruthlessly attack the bride of Christ until he is finally thrown in the pit of hell, which will be his eternal abode. In the meantime, he employs different strategies in an attempt to ruin, or at the very least, diminish the effectiveness and power of the church. In Acts 4 through 6, we see his attack on three different fronts. In Acts 4, we see his attack, which comes in the place of physical persecution. And we saw that with the imprisonments of the apostles. And as we said before, this attack will only get uh, heavier and heavier. In Acts 5, the passage we will look at this morning, we see a second attack. And on this front, he attacks the church through moral corruption. And we will see this by Satan bringing sin into the body of Christ. And then in the weeks to come, we will look at Acts 6, and we will see another attack which will come in the form of ministerial distraction. Uh, ministers and elders in the church doing good things, but neglecting to do the best things. Namely, devoting themselves to prayer and the Word of God. In the last few weeks, we've concentrated on what I'll call Satan's first strategy, and that was physical persecution. We saw that in terms of imprisonment, which was followed by further threats. And as I said, that will only increase and we will see it result also in martyrdom. Satan will not give up on this strategy. But let's ask this question. At this point, did Satan's strategy succeed? Did it stop the church from continuing on with the Great Commission? No, it did not succeed. The apostles were not intimidated, nor did they cease to preach and teach in the name of Jesus Christ. They continued right on with boldness. Now let me ask you this question. How did the apostles and the church combat Satan's first strategy? In a word, prayer. Prayer. We saw that last week. After the apostles were released because the officials could find no way uh, to threaten them or punish them further because all the people knew that the man who they healed was lame for over 40 years, they went back to the church and they basically called the church to have a prayer meeting. And they prayed. And they asked for boldness. And God answered by shaking the church and filling them anew with His Holy Spirit. And we're told that they continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. I like what the early church father Chrysostom said. He said, that experience made them the more unshakable. If you are shaken by God, I don't think anything else can shake you. 
And judging by Luke's description of the church, it seems that the believers were basically unfazed by this attack. Luke continues on in 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This passage is almost identical with what we saw in Acts 2.42 and following. And I think Luke is doing this intentionally because in Luke 42 and following, we saw almost an ideal church. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, They're selling possessions so that they can provide for one another in the body of Christ. And we're told that day by day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. And we read that and we think, wow, that's what we want to be. (laughs) We want to be like the early church. And we read that description and we think it doesn't get any better than that. And here we have Satan trying to stop that, coming after the church with physical persecution. And then after they pray, Luke basically says, now this is what's going on in the church. And the church is just continuing right along. If anything, I would submit to you that the church is actually stronger. We actually have a better description in this paragraph because here Luke says that there was not a needy person among them. And he also says that they were selling land and houses, not just possessions. Isn't that something? Imagine being a part of a church where people say, you know what, I'm going to sell my summer home. There's people in need in in the body of Christ. I'm going to sell that boat. You know, we have some investment property. We're going to sell that. We're going to bring it to the church. We're going to give it to the leaders so that they can distribute it among those who have needs in the church. This church is actually stronger because the persecution. The stronger, the persecution rather brought the church together so that they were more committed to one another. So Satan's first strategy did not succeed. But he is not deterred. He is persistent. He will not give up. So he moves on to strategy number two. Strategy number two is moral corruption. Satan's thinking, if I can't destroy the church by persecution from without, I'll try to destroy it from moral corruption within. So Satan moves on to his second strategy, and Luke shows how this happened by contrasting Barnabas and his giving and generosity and sincerity with Ananias and Sapphira, who were liars, pretenders, and hypocrites. This is what we read in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here we need to make something very clear. And back in verse 32, um, we read that no one considered anything their own, but they had everything in common. Now, we need to be very clear. Having everything in common does not equal communism. 
The first is a result of grace. The second is a result of government. The first is voluntary. The first is a joy. The latter is forced or coerced. This is voluntary giving. This is people so excited about what God is doing in their life. So in love, not only with Jesus Christ, but also with their brothers and sisters in the church that they're more than happy to sell houses, land, possessions, so that no one in the church says it needs. This is voluntary. This is a joy. And this is what the church looks like at its best. Ananias and Sapphira, they're a part of this church. They're seeing what's taking place. And we read in 1 and 2, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, reading between the lines a little bit, it seems that Ananias and Sapphira told the church, you know what, there are needs in the church. We have some property. We want to sell the property so that we can bring all the proceeds of the, of the property and give it to the church so that they can use it to help the needy in the church. Perhaps they were thinking, you know, Barnabas is pretty impressive. The apostles even gave him a nickname. Now he's known as Barnabas and not Joseph anymore. Son of encouragement. Because he was such an encouragement to the body of Christ. And perhaps they were thinking, you know what, we, we have an opportunity to sell some property and, and people could look up to us. We could walk into church on a Sunday morning and, and people could go, ooh, there's Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know what they did to help the needy in the church? They, they sold property. Uh, perhaps their, their motives were sincere at first. Um, they really did want to help, but somewhere along the lines, Satan got a hold of them and their motives were not as pure as they should have been. But we need to be very clear, the sin here is not that they kept back some of the money. Verse 4 makes that clear. Peter said, while it, talking about the property, remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, Peter said, it's your property. You can do with it whatever you want. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So after you sold, you had this money. The money was at your disposal. You could do with it whatever you want. You weren't forced to give it to the church. You didn't have to turn it all over to the church. You didn't have to turn any of it over to the church. God only requires that you give 10%. After that, it's completely up to you. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts? And we know why, because the answer is given in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? The sin here was not keeping some of the money for themselves. They were entitled to that if they wanted to. The sin was lying. They said they brought all the money when they didn't bring all the money. The sin is pretending. The sin is hypocrisy. It's a sin of presenting yourself as more spiritual than you really are. And doesn't that make you tremble? Yeah. Don't all of us want to come across as spiritual and if we're honest, more spiritual than we really are? 
Perhaps people think we're men or women of prayer and we know we've really been neglecting God in prayer. But we would hate for people to know the truth about us. We want to come across as holy and righteous, and, but we don't want people to know, actually, there's, there's a sin that I, that I struggle with. But we would hate for people to know that because instead of putting us way up here, they might look at us right here where we really are. Ananias and Sapphira were full of, them, full of themselves. They were more concerned about their ego and their reputation than they were about honoring God. And they thought they could get away with this, but they couldn't get away with this. Now, let me ask you this. The church overcame Satan's first strategy, physical persecution through prayer. How will the church overcome Satan's second strategy, moral corruption? Church discipline. Church discipline. Prayer will not be enough. They will have to take action. And in this case, God directly intervened and disciplined Himself, Ananias and Sapphira, right on the spot. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And they buried him on the spot. God brought about instantaneous church discipline. And the church discipline was death. Sometimes we, we read the Bible and I hear people say, oh, God was so hard in the Old Testament. I'm so glad that now He's merciful and loving and all gracious in the New Testament. You know what? If you read Hebrews 12, it actually says that God is now more severe with His people. And the writer of Hebrews says, if they did not escape when God spoke from the mountain talking about Mount Sinai, how much less will we escape who have heard God from heaven because Jesus Christ has come. God hasn't loosened up. If anything, He's become more strict. And there's another example in the New Testament people actually died because of sin. 1 Corinthians 11. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper at the church of Corinth. Only it's not the Lord's Supper. Some of them are getting drunk off the communion wine. Uh, the rich people are gathered together by themselves and they're ostracizing the, the poor people. Paul is appalled and God isn't happy and he brings judgment on the church because of this behavior. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning begin at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Because of the way they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, God struck this church. Some of them were weak. Some of them were ill. And some of them died because of the mockery they made of the Lord's Supper. 
Now, why would God do this? Because God's a harsh God. You know why God would do this? Because He's a God of love. And we need to understand love from a biblical point of view. This, this is love. Look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See what Paul is saying? Why did Paul, or excuse me, why did God discipline these Christians? So that they wouldn't be condemned with the world. He stopped them from going too far so that they would turn away from Him and be condemned with the world. And most commentators think that Ananias and Sapphira were genuine Christians and perhaps it was the same with them. God loved them so much He struck them dead so that they wouldn't continue on with their hypocritical Christian living and be condemned. God judges us. He disciplines us so that we will not be condemned. This is the loving hand of God. Hebrews 12.6 The Lord disciplines those He loves. Hebrews 12.11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. But discipline is a sign of love. A little while ago, a friend of mine said, boy, some people just get away with their sin. I said, no, they don't. No, they don't. God knows. God can discipline. Think about this. If they really do get away with their sin, it means they're not a son. It means God doesn't love them. If God doesn't discipline them in their sin, if God just lets them continue on in their sin, it means they're not really a son because every son is disciplined. I sure hope they don't get away with it because there's something more serious at stake and that's their soul. F.F. F. Bruce made the observation about our passage in Acts that sin interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Sin interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Therefore, it must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. Usually, God doesn't intervene directly. Usually, God calls upon the leaders of the church and the body of Christ to confront one another in their sin. And how we go about this is laid out very clearly in Matthew 18. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal is always restoration. That is the goal. We are always trying to restore the sinning brother. But true restoration cannot happen apart from repentance. So here we have a case where there's sin, one brother against another, and Jesus makes it very clear, you know what, you don't ask two or three other people to pray for you. 
You just go, you and him, between the two of you. And if he listens to you, if he says, oh, I'm so sorry for what I've done, please forgive me, you've won your brother over. That's the goal. You've won your brother over and you can continue on with fellowship in the body of Christ. But, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses, well, let me just stop there for a moment. Uh, notice that if it doesn't work the first time, you don't say, well, I tried. You have to go the second step. You can't just say, well, I guess there's going to be somebody in the church that I can't talk to. That's not an option. There has to be restoration. You cannot have a relationship in the body of Christ where there's friction because they haven't worked through an issue. You can't have that. You can't. Jesus says we can't allow that. He's making it very clear. So, basically, you have to up the ante. And you have to bring two or three others along that can verify what it happened. And you confront that person again. And if they say, okay, okay, I, yes, you're right. What I did was wrong. Please forgive me. Then you've won them over. If that doesn't work, 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if that doesn't work, you go to third step, the whole church. The third step. The third step, you have a members only meeting. And you say, we have, we have sin in the body of Christ and we have to deal with this. There's tension. There's not resolution. There's not restoration. And this, this can't continue on. Jesus tells us we've got to bring it to the church. And hopefully the church can, can reason with that person and, and they can be restored to the fellowship. What if they don't listen to the church? Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Yeah. That's serious. We call it excommunication. They cannot be a part of the body of Christ. Now, I want you to understand that through this process, we believe the best. We should always be the best. I've been a part of situations trying to mediate between, between two sides and, and, and one side has said, well, I don't, I don't think the apology was very sincere. And I say, I, I might agree that it wasn't the most sincere apology, that it could have been said a little better, but I, but I have to believe the best. I have to believe that when they say they're sorry, they're sorry. I am always going to err on the side of grace. I'm always going to err on the side of believing the best. Even if I have my doubts, I'm going to believe the best. And I also, I also want to say this, because this, this is hard-hitting. This really is. Few things hit as hard as this right here. I don't want any of you to think, well, boy, if I'm struggling with sin, I dare won't let anybody in the church know about it. We're not talking about struggle here. If someone was struggling with drugs or alcohol or some other issue and, and they, they came to me or, or one of the elders and they said, you know what, I'm, just, I'm stuck. I've got to be honest with you, brother. Sin has a hold on me. We wouldn't say, oh boy, you're, you're in trouble. If you, if you said you want help, we will give you help. It, it is honest repentance to say, I have sinned. I don't want to do this again, but I'm afraid I'm going to do this again. I need help, so I don't. 
if anybody wants help, we will offer help. That is, that is not a problem. All sinners, all Christians, I should say, are sinners, struggle, and sometimes the struggle is greater than at other times. So I want to be very clear. This, this isn't about struggling with sin. This is about having sin in your life and saying, I don't want help. Because guess what? I want to keep doing this. Those are two totally different things. Someone said they wanted help. Great, we'll help you. But if someone says, I don't want help, what are they saying? I want to continue on in my sin. That's, that's what we're talking about. Let me also say that when it comes to church discipline, it's clear. We're not, we're not talking about church pet peeves. We're talking about things that are very clear. We're not, we're not talking about issues that are gray. Some of you think, you know, it's, it's wrong to have, have a beer or a glass of wine and uh, there's issues about that. No, we're, we're, we're talking about where we all know what the Bible says. All of us reasonable because the Bible is very clear. We're talking about clear, obvious sin. Not what we could call perhaps household rules where you have different ways of viewing different things and we can allow that in the body of Christ because you apply the principles differently. This is going to take place. It's going to be clear sin, which means chapter and verse can be opened up to. This is what God says. God says, don't do this. This person is doing this. So we're talking about very clear sin. Now, here's the question you might have at this point. Why would a church do this? Why would a church excommunicate anybody? Let me give you four answers. Number one, because God commands it. Nobody would do this unless God commanded it. This is this isn't enjoyable. If any of you have ever been a part of church discipline, you know horrible. The only reason anybody would do it is because God commands it. And why would God command this? Because of holy love. So we do it because God commands. Another reason why we would do it is for the soul of the sinner. 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's sexual immorality in the church. Sadly, it's of a kind not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. His relationship is continuing on. The church has done nothing about the situation. And Paul says in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, why you do this? You love the person so much. You send them out of the church so that the message is very clear, very compelling. We don't consider you a believer because of how you're behaving 
right now. You may be, you may not be. Actually, right now, we don't know. But you do this. You do this tough love, turning them over to Satan, because that's, that's what it is outside the church. The illustration has been used of, of Noah's Ark. There's safety in the ark. There's safety in, in the church, outside the church, outside the ark. There's judgment. But you do this so that their soul would be saved. So that in due time, like the prodigal son, they would come to their senses and they would return to their father and they would say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So that they would come back. That's why you do it. Because it's loving. Another reason why you exercise this kind of church discipline is for the protection of the flock. Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You bakers know a little, little leaven. You work it in the dough and it, over time it, it affects the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You have to do this for, for the protection of the flock. The, the illustration that we use in our culture is one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. You, you can't spoil the whole bunch. You, you can't just allow sin to go. It has an effect on other people. Other people in the body of Christ are, are watching. And if you say that's okay, especially I think of impressionable people in the church saying, oh, that's okay. I guess that kind of activity is okay. And then it spreads. You, you can't say that. And, and this is hard. I remember years ago before I came to this church, I, I was teaching a Bible study at, at the Korean church that I was a part of. And it, it was in this passage, but it was in Thessalonians where it talks about have nothing to do with those who are idle. And I, and I remember saying, how does that hit you? And, and someone said, wow, that, that's strong. That, that's what Paul says here. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. Very important clarification here. Paul is talking about those who call themselves a Christian and are continuing on in sexual immorality in this case. He's not talking about your neighbor or your co-worker who are living in sin. He's not saying don't have anything to do with them. He's making a very clear distinction. This is sin in the church, not sin outside of the church. And then it says in verse 11, But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. He's talking about a person who's a Christian who's continuing on in unrepentant sin. And unrepentance is the key word. We're all sinners, but we're called to repent. A Christian won't repent. Paul says, and I know this is hard, Paul says, you're not to associate with that person. You're to say, sorry, I, I can't associate with you. And he makes it very clear in 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? 
is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So there's a very clear distinction between Christians and non-Christians, those inside the church and those outside the church. When it comes to judging, we're not to judge those outside the church. We are to judge those inside the church. And I know the most popular Bible verse in our time is do not judge. But Paul just said right here, judge those inside the church. When Jesus says do not judge, He says do not judge your brother according to one standard and yourself according to another. What Jesus is rebuking is hypocritical judging. But we are to judge those inside the church. It's very clear. And we do it for the protection of the flock as well. And the fourth reason why we do this is for the testimony of the church. The world is watching us. Many people outside of Fox Lake Community Church know what's going on here. They watch. Yesterday we were working on the deck and, and Brian's vehicle couldn't stop or couldn't start and we were trying to find some uh, jumper cables. So I went next door to Jewel and I went up to the counter and there were a couple ladies there and I asked if they had jumper cables and um, when I got the cable, I thought, you want keys or something make sure every church? She said, no, I trust you. I said, well, yeah, because I'm going over to the church. That'd be terrible if you couldn't trust someone going over to the church. And she said, yeah, I see all the activities going on over there. What, what, what are you guys building over there? I said, oh, we're, bu- we're building a deck over there. They're, they're watching. Not just because they drive by and they, they see a deck, but they're, they're watching. They hear what's going on in the church. And we have to be a testimony we are to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Even if they accuse us of doing wrong, we're to do good so that they will come to Christ. They, they may say, oh, you guys are this or that. But when we live morally upright lives, not perfect, but when we're honest about that, that's a testimony. And people are brought to Christ by that. What would happen to the church Hypocrisy and sin was allowed to continue on. The church wouldn't look any different than the corner bar. People gathering together, social, socializing together, sharing their lives. Nothing more to offer than the corner bar, though. Not any different. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about honesty and sincerity. Because I know when we've, we've done, when we've done this in the past, the church has rocked. And in the comments I've heard, wow, do you have to be perfect to be a part of this church? I said, no, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to repent. You just have to say, I'm sorry. You just have to apologize. Just like at home, you sin against your spouse or your children or your children sin against parents and you just tell your brother you're sorry. You need to go apologize to your mother. And then it's over. You forgive and you move on. It's not about perfection. It's about honesty, sincerity. Now again, why, why would God call us to do this? Love. If we love God's Word, we will obey even the hard parts. If we love sinners, if we really love their souls, we'll do what's best for their souls. Not just our relationship with them, but their soul. I know some in here have had to discontinue fellowship over sin. That's love. 
you really love the body of Christ, you will want this to happen because you will fear for the effect that it will have upon others. And if you really do love the lost, you want the church to be a beacon. You want the church to be a light to them. You want the church to be a place where people are different. People can be transformed. This is love. I don't expect this kind of love to be to be understood in the world. But this is biblical love. When you find when you define love with biblical parameters and boundaries, this is what you have. God defines what true love is, not not the world. This is love. What happened in Acts when Ananias fell down dead? Great fear. Not just fear, but great fear came upon all who heard it. And then in verse 11, after Sapphira fell down dead, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. People in church and outside the church said, wow, they're, they're serious about the Christian life. And they said that literally with fear and trembling. But again, it's necessary. F.F. Bruce said when when sin comes into the body of Christ, the victorious progress of the church is stopped. But when sin is dealt with, victorious progress of the church can continue on. And that's what we see taking place. Acts 5.14 And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women the church grew. They dealt with sin so the, the testimony could continue on. The power could continue on. The Spirit wouldn't be grieved. And the church continued to grow. That's what has to take place if the church is to continue on. And Satan's second strategy right here didn't work. But we have to admit in our day too often it does work. And we do have to admit sometimes that there's a reason why unbelievers say the church is full of hypocrites. Because the church allows the church to be full of hypocrites. The leaders allow that to happen. And we wonder why in America today the impact of the church has just gone down, 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 and we're almost completely irrelevant. What do we have to offer? This is tough. But if we really would apply these things in the body of Christ, the world would at least say this about us. They're serious about walking with God. They're not playing games. And they would respect us. Even if they didn't like us, they would respect us. And guess where they would turn when they needed prayer? Guess where they would turn when they wanted to be delivered from drugs and alcohol. Guess where they would turn? The body of Christ. They would say, they have some answers. And they would come to us. And we could say, you know what? I, I can relate, brother. I can relate. Let me tell you about when I was on drugs. Let me tell you how God was gracious and merciful to me, though. And we could have an impact once again. 
But we have to follow God. We have to do what God's calling us to do. Let's close in prayer. Father, what a sobering passage to see You striking down a brother and a sister in the body of Christ because of their hypocrisy. Father, we tremble. Father, I want to ask that this this passage will fill us with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Father, may we have wisdom because we fear You. Father, I pray that You will help us as a church to be a repentant people, to own up to our sin. And Father, give us strength and the courage to do the hard work of ministry when necessary. Understanding that there are clear reasons why You command us to do hard things at times. Because of love. Help us to have Your understanding of love clearly in our minds. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.